We're going to be back in Matthew chapter 5. Um, we're in that section of the Sermon on the Mount after the Beatitudes. Today we're going to do Matthew chapter 5 starting in verse 31. And uh, the subject today is kind of a touchy subject. Hey, Karsh. <laughs> I didn't even see you there. You're hiding behind Coulter. Um, we, uh, we're going to be talking about divorce. I guess I drew the short straw. Um, actually, Matt talked about adultery and lust last week, right? Yeah, and the week before was murder. So uh, some pretty light topics we've been dealing with here at River's Edge. Um, but it's interesting, you know, after the Beatitudes and Jesus speaks out these, these uh, kind of, uh, um, what, is he, what does he call them? He calls them speakings of blessings, little blessings that he's referring to in the Beatitudes how the blessings get kind of turned upside down of how we see blessing coming into our life and how God actually views those blessings. And then he jumps right into a series of uh, teachings. Um, he calls us salt and light. And he says we're called to go out into the world and be salt and light. And he says I've come then not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And Karsh did a great job on that a few weeks ago. And then Matt started in a couple weeks ago on the heavy stuff, murder. And Jesus says, you know, murder is much more than just killing someone. It's what's in your heart. And then he goes into adultery and lust. And, and, and Matt shared pretty clearly last week that, that adultery and lust is also about the death of a relationship, isn't it? Be, because when, when, we, when we commit adultery, when we commit lust, we're actually, we're actually killing the, the intention of that relationship that God has. And the same thing happens in divorce. Divorce is, is really the ultimate death of a, of a marriage relationship. And so all of, these, all of these little teachings that Jesus has all tie together. They all come together in this section of Matthew's gospel known as the Sermon on the Mount, um, which Matt shared. I think you called it a kingdom talk on a hillside, right? And he's explaining to the disciples and, and about to his disciples all from, who come from all sorts of backgrounds and and these seemingly insignificant positions in life, what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God, which is very different than what the first century leaders and rulers and the Pharisees and the Sadducees considered the, the entry into the kingdom was going to look like. And as Jesus is teaching, um, as Matt shared last week, it's not through uh, following these laws, these, these laws of governing external actions, but it's through the remaking of the human heart at the deepest level by the Holy Spirit of God that we have entry into the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is speaking on, that Jesus is talking about in this passage. Because really what God is concerned about is what's in our heart. He's concerned about what's inside. He's not concerned about the external actions because we can all play the game. We get pretty good at it, don't we? We know what to say and when to say it. We know how to look, how to dress, how to act in different situations. And yet what God is concerned about is he's concerned about what's on the inside. He's way more concerned about that than he is about whether or not we're getting up in the morning and doing our daily devotions, whether or not we're getting up and, and doing some prayer time. Because it's not about the act, it's about the relationship for God. It's about what does it mean to be in a relationship 
with the king of the universe. And it's not outward focused, it's inward focused. And so what Jesus does in this little section called the Sermon on the Mount is he takes these these very human conditions that we find ourselves um, experiencing even today in our own lives, things like murder, things like adultery, things like lust, things like divorce, and he speaks into them with this grace-based platform of understanding. And he gives us a different way of viewing what it is that he wants us to understand about these topics. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible or a Bible app, it's probably going to pop up on the screen here. Starting in verse 31, Jesus says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Sorry, I'm trying to fix my little thing here. It's making a lot of noise. It's interesting that Jesus ties divorce into the concept of adultery. Just what Matt talked about last week. Because all of these things for him go hand in hand. It's all about the death of the relationship as God intended it to be between humanity. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. But we can't really focus on this topic of divorce without having a clear picture and understanding of what God's view of marriage is. Because marriage is at the heart of God's intention for humanity. I'm not saying you have to be married to be fully human. Don't get me wrong there. You can be single. Paul talks about singleness in a lot of places in the New Testament. But what I'm saying is at the very beginning of God's creation, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, which Matt may have brushed on last week, what we see is God establishing this relationship between a man and and a woman. And he says it is good that a man should leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Adam sees Eve for the first time, And he says, this is woman, she was born of my body, and now I am complete. And then in that completeness, God speaks into that with this first command. And the first command is to do what? To be fruitful and multiply. And you got to talk about all the fun stuff about sex last week, right? That was supposed to be a little bit of a a light moment there, but uh, it's okay. Yeah, we're we're all... uh, But God speaks into this relationship. God speaks into the relationship between a man and a woman, and he says it is good. It is a good thing for a man and a woman to be together. If you go back and you read that account, it says God created humanity in his own image. Male and female, he created them. We see that men and women are created distinct but equal, right? So we have dominion over the earth prior to the fall. So God's intention is that man and woman together would have dominion over creation, that they would rule over the things in the garden, and that there would be this, this, um, this co, co-equal and co-supportive um, relationship between them as they move forward in their, in their life together. But the problem was that uh, 
sin crept into the world. And so in Genesis chapter 3, the distortion of the original relationship begins. And that distortion spoke directly into that relationship that Adam and Eve had. And so it said very quickly after they had taken the fruit that God told them not to eat, suddenly they recognized that they were naked and they were ashamed and they were hiding from God. And in that hiding from God, it kind of spoke into the rest of humanity from, from the time we find ourselves in now. Where we hide from God or we hide from each other or we hide things because we don't want people to know or others to know what's really going on. And that's really what the distinction is between God's intention and the place that we find ourselves here today. Because God's intention was for them to just enjoy each other. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. They got after it. They started having kids. Humanity expanded. And and we look around the room today and we see the fruit of that expansion. But, but, But with that sin that had crept into the relationship, we find ourselves today struggling with similar things in relationships. And this problem that humanity has faced is that this sin came onto the scene and God's original intention for his creation to exist and thrive in love and covenant relationship was distorted then and continues to be distorted today. And what Jesus is saying to us in the Sermon on the Mount in these speakings is that this covenant relationship, this marriage relationship, it really represents the the pinnacle of God's created existence for man and woman. And it's so central to who we are, so sacred, that any threat to that sanctity of the relationship is going to distort things as we move forward in our own lives. So far so, or so much so, that it will in some cases end in murder. And in other cases, it ends in adultery, or it ends in being tied up into lust, or in other cases, it ends in the death of a marriage, which Jesus is talking about today, and that is divorce. And really, any alternative to this idea that God had of the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman is a distortion of the idea that we are created as humans to be in relationship with one another in God's image, in the image of who God is. When I was listening to Matt, I noticed last week he shared this. He said that um, as, as, as divine image bearers, we are created to rule and reign over the earth in loving communion with the creator and with one another, bringing this world into a place of peace and flourishing and ordered beauty as God created. So that's a mouthful, but really what it means is this. We're created to express and to reflect God to humanity. And our marriages are created to reflect and express God to humanity as well. And if we are to be divine image bearers of Christ, of the Holy Spirit, of the Creator God, then our marriages necessarily have to reflect the same thing. And that's really at the heart of what Jesus is speaking to here. 
because he talks about divorce, and he ends the divorce talk with anyone who would remarry commits adultery, but right at the center of this discussion is the implication that marriage is the sacred covenant relationship that is to be held onto, that is to be elevated, that is to be put forward. And that's what God asks us to do. See, it's a reflection of God's heart that we would, that we would reflect his image to other people, that our relationships would reflect the image of God to other people. And whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you hope to be married, whether you intend to stay single, that's not the point. The point is that our relationships are intended to reflect God to those around us. So wherever we find ourselves, whether we find ourselves at home, at work, whether we find ourselves on vacation across the world in the Philippines, our relationships are intended to reflect God to those people who we come into contact with, who are around us. And so we're, we're talking about this concept of divorce today, and we're talking about the implications of God's design for marriage. And, and we're talking about it in the context of Jesus having this conversation 2,000 years ago on a hillside above the Jordan River, and you're probably sitting here thinking to yourself, my gosh, is he going to go on and on about this? What does this have to do with me today? I mean, really. What do the words that Jesus have have to do with us today? Because our culture is very different than the culture of 2,000 years ago, isn't it? In fact, really, if we want to talk about the concept of, of marriage and divorce and relationship, we have to talk about it in the context of the culture we live in today. Because today's culture is very different than 2,000 years ago. Today's culture doesn't have this basic understanding of, of relationship between a man and a woman in the same context that it did for the days, uh, in the days that Jesus was talking to the people in Jerusalem and in Galilee and in all the places that he was in his ministry. Because our culture today really promotes self over community. I mean, if we want to face it, we're, we are a selfish society. We, we have promoted for so long a sovereign self over a sovereign God that every decision that we make necessarily elevates ourself over the community and the group. That's not the way it is around the world. It definitely is the way it is in the United States culture right now. And if we look at that culture, if we look at what it looks like to be a part of this culture, when we're making decisions based on how we feel, whether we're happy, whether we think it's going to be the best decision for us, whether the decision that I'm making today is going to be a decision that is going to be good for me five years from now, five hours from now, maybe even five minutes from now, depending on how narcissistic we are in our own decisions, it's got, to be, it, it's got to be understood the culture that's speaking into the marriage relationship today. Because it's devalued the relationship that God established in Genesis 1 and 2. 
It devalued it to the point where it says, whatever makes you happy is the decision that you should make. Whatever is going to promote your self-interest is the decision that you should make. I mean, after all, we are a society and a country that says um, we, are, we, are, we are entitled to the pursuit of life and liberty and what? The pursuit of happiness. And we have internalized that and we have made that so selfish upon ourselves that decisions that we make reflect that to the people around us. Now, those are hard words, but I'm included in that. I'm included in that. I look back on decisions that I have made over the last 25 years or 30 years, and I think to myself, if I had understood some of the things in a deeper way that God has, has revealed to me uh, today in my relationships, I wouldn't have made some of those decisions. I wouldn't have made them. Because the decisions that I made were more selfish towards myself than they were towards my family or my friends or or the people around me. And, and, and things that I was doing in my life would, would necessarily not portray God to other people. And really, that's what God intended us to do in our relationships, was to glorify Him, was to reflect Him to the people around us. But I want to ask us this, this question about marriage. What if God intended for marriage to make us more holy than make us happy? What if God's intention for marriage was to bring us more into the likeness of Christ? So that in the reflection of our marriage, God would, God would be seen as a holy and righteous and glorified God rather than a selfish, self-centered um, narcissistic person because of who we are, because of what we're reflecting. Because I really believe that that is at the core of what God wants us to understand about marriage. And we have to understand his ideas about marriage if we're going to understand what his thoughts are on divorce. Because as followers of Jesus, we, are always, should, we should always be asking ourselves this question, Will we approach marriage from a God-centered view or from a self-centered view? It's going to change the decisions we make. It's going to change how we live. It's going to change what we look like to our spouse or to the neighbor across the street or to our parents or to our children. Because in a, in a, in a self-centered view that our secular culture promotes, we will maintain our marriage as long as our earthly comforts and our desires and our expectations are met. But in a God-centered view, we will preserve our marriage because it brings glory to God and it points a sinful world to a reconciling Savior. Let that sink in for a second. Because there's a whole host of ramifications to that statement. See, it, it affects decisions that we make in our relationships. It affects how we act. It affects what we say and what we do. And, and that's part of why Jesus is doing these 
these series of talks on this mountainside because he's creating this whole new culture called a kingdom of God. Followers of Jesus. His disciples. The ones who want to become like him. And in creating this new culture, he's necessarily going to be, be countercultural to not only the culture that was 2,000 years ago, but the culture very much that we are faced with today. And here in Matthew 5, he's standing on this hillside talking about life in that kingdom. And he's talking about real things like murder and adultery and lust and divorce and difficulty and pain and suffering and things that we are going to face in our life. And he's talking about real issues like sexuality, like Matt talked about last week, and money and anxiety. And really, he could just as easily be standing on a hillside in Spokane, overlooking the Spokane River, speaking the same things out today, couldn't he? Because divorce is just as prevalent in our society, perhaps more so than it was 2,000 years ago. I'm not going to have time to go into all of the ramifications of what first century divorce looked like. There are, there's the whole host of, there's basically two Pharisaical camps that, that one was Rabbi Shammai and one was Rabbi Hillel, and the Shammai camp was more conservative, and they said you could really only divorce your wife on the grounds of moral, moral failure or, or adultery. And the Hillel camp said, you can divorce your wife for anything. You don't like the way she looks in the morning when you wake up? Give her a certificate of divorce. Sounds a lot like today's society, doesn't it? See, that's what Jesus is speaking into. In fact, in Matthew 19, Jesus says almost the same thing about divorce. He says, when Jesus, in Matthew 19, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee, went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan, Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him to test him. These are these camps, okay? These are the people that are trying to catch him in a, in a little dispute among the Pharisees. And so they ask him this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's the Rabbi Hillel camp, right? Any reason. And Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning... The Creator made them male and female. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So the Pharisees start talking about this question about divorce, and they say, is, is there any reason, can, can you divorce your wife for any reason? And Jesus takes them back to where? Genesis 1 and 2. And he said, God created man and woman in the beginning for this covenant relationship together, one flesh, and in that covenant, holy, sacred relationship, his intention for, for the creation of humanity would be fully displayed. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of a divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. See, God does, con he's concerned about the heart. He's way more concerned about what we're 
doing in our lives and what's going on inside us than he is about the actual, um, the actual act of divorce. He wants to know what he wants us to know what's going on inside us is what he's concerned with. Moses said that, he said, they said, because your hearts were hard. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation, or actually before that, Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay? The rabbi, the rabbi Shammai camp. Okay? The more conservative camp. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, okay, God's intention for humanity in marriage, because divorce is only going to occur if a marriage has occurred, okay? So I'm necessarily, if I'm speaking about divorce, I have to speak in the context of marriage. Because of the conservative nature of this particular camp and the idea that there are certain circumstances, like Matt talked about last week with adultery, that are going to necessarily break the covenant relationship that a man and a woman have with one another, going back to the whole murder thing. It's, a, it's a, the death of a relationship. That's all divorce is. So the murder and the adultery and the lust and the divorce really are one topic being expanded out and then brought back in by Jesus. And what he's saying is, except for this circumstance... God's intention is that a man and a woman would remain married. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And I'm not going to get into the whole eunuch thing here. Um, that's a different discussion for Matt to bring up. Or Matt Karsh, you, you're welcome to bring that one up. Um, the one who can accept this should accept it. Not everyone can accept this word. So what's he saying? He's saying, in the context of marriage, I want you to remain married. That's my heart. That's the relationship that I have created, the sacred relationship. There are circumstances in which the, the divorce is justified in a marriage, but it's not God's ultimate intention. So what, is that, what does that mean? It means that we want to be doing everything we can to maintain our marriages the way God intended them to be. Now, I realize that there are some of you here that have been affected by divorce in a very profound way. Maybe your parents were divorced. Through no fault of your own, you found yourself being swept up and down in this, this cycle of emotion because of what was going on in your family. And, and I just want to say this to you. You're not responsible for your parents' divorce. It's not your responsibility to maintain their marriage. 
I recognize that it's a painful situation to go through that. But you're not responsible for that. And so if you sit here today and you wonder what this has to do with your family, I guess my point that I would like to speak to you is do everything you can for your future, for your relationships, to make them the way that God intended them to be. And I'm not diminishing the pain, but I'm certainly saying God is speaking to people who are married. And God is speaking to people who are in that situation. And and I'm going to have some things to say to those of you who have a large number of single people here. And I'm going to have some things to say to you specifically about that in a moment. But what I really want to just say is I want to acknowledge that divorce is painful and real, but it's not your responsibility. Unless it's your marriage, it's not your responsibility. Jesus really boils down life as his disciples to a couple of things. He says, um, in a number of places, he says, when he's asked what is the greatest commandment, he says, the the greatest commandment basically are these two things. Love the Lord your God, God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in a society that elevates the self so high, what if people started loving their neighbors as they love themselves? It'd be transforming, wouldn't it? It'd be transforming today. If we were able to love our neighbors, because really our neighbor is anybody who we're in relationship with, in the context that Jesus is talking about here. It could be a husband and a wife. It could be a, a son and a daughter. And a, and a father and a mother. It could be the neighbor across the street. It could be your boss and your work relationship. But loving your neighbor really speaks to every relationship you're a part of. So we're called to love God with all our heart, and we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if we're able to do that, if we're really able to do that, then this ethic of the restoration of the kingdom really becomes a reality. Because that's what Jesus is speaking on here. He's speaking on what it means to restore humanity in the context of God's created intention and design. And that's why it's so important for us to understand that in these processes of, of, of the relationships that we find ourselves in, every relationship that people look at is either pointing people to God or pointing people away from God. So what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with us today? Just some practical things I want to speak about marriage and divorce. The first is that I think we're supposed to call, we're called to understand and obey God's word on marriage and divorce understand what God says about it. Understand that God created male and female to come together in covenant relationship with each other, to love one another, to cherish one another, and to be a part of that relationship for as long as they live. We need to understand that. And in today's culture, 
There are so many things speaking against that that that's a hard message to keep rolling in our mind. The more we can put that message in our heart, the more that that message works out in our heart and in our relationships, especially in a, in a culture that is, is, is so anti um, so anti relationship in the way that God intended relationship to be, it's important that we understand that and that we focus on that. And if we're going to obey God's word on this, then we've got some work to do. We're going to have to promote a high view of marriage and really try to prevent divorce. Now, I'm speaking to you single people, men and women sitting here, that aren't in those relationships yet, but some of you will be in those relationships in the future. Marriage is a wonderful thing between a man and a woman. It's also work. I've been married 29 years, coming up on April 23rd. And in those 29 years, my wife would say, it's been some work, because I'm not the easiest guy to live with. And I'll freely admit that. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And you know what? Sometimes I wake up in the morning, and my breath stinks, and I want things my way, and um, I'm a little grumpy and grouchy, and uh, it wasn't exactly the way it was in those nine months that we were dating, right? Hard to believe, isn't it? But we need to learn and understand what God's view of marriage is. And so a few practical things about what that looks like. First, be careful and prayerful when choosing a mate, okay? Be careful and prayerful when you're choosing a mate. Think about it. Study the person. See what they're like. See what they think. Find out what they know. And pray about it and ask God about it. It's a lifetime decision. It's not a hasty decision. It's not a quick decision to make. And the longer you know each other for a longer period of time before you get married, before you get engaged, whatever that process looks like, the, the, perhaps the, the better decision you can make. Now, I know there are people out there that, you know, love at first sight, and they, they met each other, and they got married 30 days later, and they're still married after 100 years. That's awesome. That's the exception, not the rule. The rule is get to know one another and make, it, make an informed decision, an informed decision that looks like you've been informed by God through the Holy Spirit and been informed by trusted people in your life that you know, perhaps your parents, perhaps people around you, other married people that you know and trust, and make the decision that God wants you to make. And perhaps the most important thing is make sure that they love Jesus as much as you do. And that's actually talked about in Scripture, not to be unequally yoked. So make sure that they love Jesus. The second thing I think you should do is prepare for marriage. Prepare for it. How many of you are in college right now studying something? Oh, a lot of, lot of people, right? So if I were to ask you and tell you in two weeks... You're going to take a test, and that test is going to influence the rest of your life. Would you study for it? Or would you just show up and 
say, I'll just take my chances. No, you'd study for it. I, I know half, half of you have gone through exams, and I was in university, and I know what it means to go through that. Prepare for your marriage. Do some work. Put the amount of time in that you would put into just a basic, I mean, I would hope more than a basic algebra class, right? Well, you're probably well above al- algebra here, right? High-level high calculus, I don't know. Prepare for your marriage. There's a lot of books out there. I, I've done a, a couple of weddings in the last, uh, in the last couple of months, and uh, one of the things I require as a, as a pastor is that when I'm doing a marriage um, with people, uh, six months of premarital counseling where we're going through discussions and we're talking about real things. We're talking about money, and we're talking about how to communicate, and we're talking about how to resolve conflict. We're talking about sex. We're talking about finances. We're talking about real things that people deal with for the rest of their lives, whether they're single or they're not. But we're certainly going to talk about them in the context of marriage. Because people come into relationships with all sorts of pre-existing expectations. And the more you can talk about those pre-existing expectations, the better you're prepared to enter into that relationship on a long-term basis. So prepare for your marriage. And maybe that preparation means seeking out a seasoned couple that's been married in a marriage relationship that you respect and asking them to mentor you for a while and to share openly and honestly about their struggles and their challenges and their victories in their marriage and all of the things that they've gone through. So prepare for your marriage. Um, The third thing is be the right one. People always talk about, oh, I'm looking for the right person, right? The right guy, the right, the right lady. Maybe it's better if we're the right one. If we focus on being the right one to the other person, it's really speaking into that loving your neighbor as yourself, isn't it? Loving your neighbor, loving your future spouse, loving the person you're in a relationship with. So be the right one. Be the kind of husband, guys, that your wife is expecting, that God is expecting, that Scripture is pointing to. Be someone who can love their wife as Christ loved the church, that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5. And ladies, be the kind of wife that God expects you to be in that marriage and covenant relationship. And then the fourth thing is seek help at the first sign of trouble. Because i got to tell you, after 29 years almost of marriage, there's been a few ups and a few downs. We have had to work through some things. And seeking help is smart to do when you're facing those situations. Because other people have gone through perhaps what you're going through, and they've weathered that storm, and they've gone through it in a way that you haven't seen. So seek help. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. It's a way to reach out and say, Lord, Bring someone into our lives that can help us through this situation. It's not a judgmental thing. It's a way to welcome the community around you. And it's just like bringing into the light what's going on in your relationship. And the more you can bring that thing into the light, the less opportunity the enemy has to keep you in the darkness. So seek help. Because really, divorced couples argue just as much as 
people who remain married. I mean, the, the arguments and the concerns and the worries over finances and sex and kids and bills and all the things, the ten different things that kind of crop up on the list of irreconcilable differences that are talked about in courts of law when people say we're not going to be state remain married. They're the same list that married people go through as well. It's just that married people are committed to the relationship such that they're willing to seek help and go through that with someone together. And that leads us to the last thing, and that is to be committed to your marriage. It's a commitment. God's ex- expectation is that it's a, it's a covenant relationship. If you look at the covenant relationships that God established with humanity, cutting covenant and the whole concept of cutting covenant with someone is like the idea, remember if it was Karsh or, or Deason that talked about the, what was it, the, the flaming pod and the, um, as God was, was as, as the animals were, were cut in two and God himself, the image of God himself passing through these, these divided animals, it's basically the idea that may this happen to me, may, the, may the, 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 the division of this animal's body happen to me if I break covenant with you. That's, a, that's kind of the, the, the biblical context of covenant. So what does that mean? It means God wants us to remain together. He wants us to be committed. He wants us so much that he's calling it a covenant relationship, a sacred relationship. And so we want to do that. And I, I believe that you in your marriages, whether you're, you're in, the, in the single stage right now and your marriage will be in the future, whether you're in your marriage right now, we have a prophetic role to the culture that we find ourselves in today to be speaking out God's intention for the marriage relationship. And, and I guess the, the last thing is for those who either have been affected by divorce or have been divorced, um, extend compassion and grace to the divorced. Compassion, grace, and love. It's not a judgmental thing to speak about God's intention for marriage. And the reality is that some of you in this room have been affected by divorce. And perhaps some of you will be affected yourselves by divorce through no fault of your own. We as a community want to extend compassion and grace. And I realize that that is a sensitive topic. But we need to remember that all of this, all of these contexts, all of this divorce conversation is covered in God's empowering grace. His grace and his compassion and his love for his creation. And if you've been divorced, you might feel like your, your stuff is just out there for the world to see that, that, gosh, who am I? You know, here's Tracy's talking about this relationship and my relationship wasn't like that or my relationship isn't like that. God cares about where you are right now. And he cares about who you are right now. And he cares about what you're going through right now. I'm reminded of Jesus talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And in the middle of the day, he goes to this well, 
And here's this woman coming to draw water when women don't necessarily come to draw water. And she's there, and he asks her for a drink. And she starts down this road, who are you, a man, to even ask me for a drink of water? And they begin this discourse. And it becomes really clear that she's come from some broken relationships. In fact, Jesus speaks out the fact that you've, you've had four or five husbands and the one you're with isn't your husband now. She's come from this broken context of relationships. And yet by the end of that little discourse, that conversation that Jesus has with this woman at the well, she's empowered to go back to her hometown and to evangelize the whole place for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what God wants to speak into us today. That his love and grace and compassion and mercy and empowering presence is with us no matter where we've been, no matter where we are, and wherever we're planning to go. That's his promise for us today. Now, it's been a difficult topic to talk about, but I really would want us to walk away with just a couple of things. One is that God loves you. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for your life. And if you're single right now, God has a plan for you exactly where you are and exactly where you're going to go. Jeremiah 29, 11 promises that. If you're married right now, you're, and your marriage is in a strong place, God's going to use that marriage for people to look at and reflect God's glory to those around us. If you're, if you're married right now and your marriage is in a little bit rocky place, God will use that as an even greater opportunity to see God's grace and mercy and reconciliation and love extended to a society, a culture that desperately needs to know what it means to walk in the presence and as an image bearer of Jesus. The Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, he closed up the place with flesh, and the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They lived as they were created. They lived as God intended, in the image of God the Creator in a covenant relationship of grace and love. And God said their life was very good. Let's pray.